2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey there, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky and I'm flying solo today. Uh, We're doing an emergency episode. For the first time since we started this thing, people have been asking us to do an interview with a specific writer about a specific piece. And because we don't ever want to disappoint anyone, we're going to oblige. The story in question here ran last week in the New York Times Magazine. It's called, Here is What Happens When You Cast Lindsay Lohan in Your Movie. It was written by Stephen Roderick and uh, it is completely insane. Um, Since we're only going to talk about this one piece, if you haven't read it yet, I recommend you pause the podcast, go and read it. It's not going to make a ton of sense if you haven't read it, but either way, here's the gist. Uh, Roderick got complete access to the set of this micro-budget film called The Canyons, which was being directed by Paul Schrader. It was written by Brett Easton Ellis. It starred Lohan and this porn star named James Dean. all of them except for Dean, who's kind of <laughs> on the come up, but the rest of them are all at something of like a professional nader, and they're all taking the flyer on this $250,000 movie. Uh, they raised a bunch of the money on Kickstarter. Um, it was kind of a uh, small bet, something that they were hoping would really resurrect their careers. Uh, there's a real air of desperation to the piece. Anyway, it completely blew up online, as you might expect. Uh, it's on pace to be one of the most read stories in the history of long form. And all these people started tweeting at us that we had to ask Roderick how he got this story and how he got this access. Uh, and so I called him up and, uh, here is our conversation. Roderick, I should say is a contributing writer at the New York times magazine. Uh, he's a contributing editor at men's journal. He's got a book coming out, uh, called the magical stranger, which you should really buy. He's written tons of other fantastic articles, uh, but right now, we're talking all Lohan, all the time. Stephen, thank you so much for uh, for joining us for this emergency podcast. <laughs> no worries. It's the first time uh, we have ever had people uh, soliciting us to interview uh, a specific person about a specific story, and we and we felt like we had to oblige. Well, all my mother's uh, black ops social media account seems to have done their job, so I'm, I'm more than happy to answer, yeah, pra- answer any questions. Yeah, she killed it. She just killed it for you. Um, well, let's start. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, how did you get this kind of access? I mean, isn't aren't you not supposed to be able to do what you just did? Isn't that like uh, against all laws of Hollywood at this point? Uh, I, I think sort of. I mean, I'd, I've done a few of these stories before, and. Uh, Perhaps not by coincidence. They happen about for me for about once every two years or so, just because you have to get the stars to align perfectly. And I think what worked in this case was I had met Paul Schrader, the director, a couple of years ago and talked about doing a story in a different project, and um, uh, it fell through. So when this uh, the Canyons came together, I still had his email, and I just emailed him, and I knew it would be low budget. And 
I kind of went for broke. I said, look, if, if I'm going to do this story, you got to basically let me be on the set all the time. Um, he said, well, I'll think about it. And an hour later, he emailed me back and said, okay, let's do it. So, um, And what do you think his motivations were? I mean, I have some theories about what his motivations were. But what, why? what's in it for him? Why do he let you do that? Um, I, I think it's a, it's a couple reasons. I think you know he's written books about film and talking about the process a lot. So I think... Part of it was, you know, look, this is this is how sausage gets made, and um, come along, and I'll, and I'll show you. Um, the other thing is, obviously, it's New York Times, and for a micro-budget film of, with a budget of two hundred fifty thousand, you know, that that's publicity that's hard to get. So I think right. I think it was a, you know, two you know two things. One that you know that that he's a pretty open guy about his feelings and about how he makes films, and two, it's like, oh, you can't buy this kind of publicity. He's certainly an open guy. Dropped Trow at one point in the yes. story. But there was one other thought I had, which was that uh, perhaps having you on set helped him with his biggest problem. Well, I don't know. If, you know, it, it, it's funny you say that because uh, may, maybe or maybe not. I mean, there. Well, I mean, you make you, you reference a couple of times in the story that he's, you know, there is a uh, conscious strategy being employed to control Lohan. Right. Right. And I mean, I can't think of many things that would be better for someone who has gone through what she's gone through with the press than sure. to have a reporter on set all the time. Uh, that, that would that would be how you or I would think about this. And this is maybe even how Paul thought about it. But I will tell you, there were moments uh, while I was there when, you know, Lindsay was being a little bit difficult and her response would be, I'm glad the New York Times is here to see how I'm being mistreated. So I guess I just say her, her, her view of, you know, uh, the, of the truth and what was, you know, what was going to be in the story might be a little bit different than what Paul's version of it was going to be. But you do, when you enter these kind of situations where everyone sees you a little bit kind of as a father confessor, and especially if you're there all the time and they'll kind of sidle up to you and say, guy, can you believe this happened or that happened? And, well, I got the impression reading it that you were sidling up to her some too. Like there's a, a couple of scenes where it feels at least like she's kind of bounced outside for a smoke break and right. you kind of followed her out. And and those are actually some of the only direct quotes from her is when she's outside smoking a butt. Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, her people, um, She well, a little bit of a backstory. She had a, uh, a then scheduled Barbara Walters interview to come up uh, to promote a TV movie she was in and. Her publicist at the time says, well, she can't do any kind of, you know, print interviews while, before we do this. So, um, and, and part of it was a cat and mouse thing where, you know, we'd set up time to talk and then she'd cancel. And um, I, I do think, you know, in the, the times we ended up getting to talk, particularly toward the end of the shoot and the time she let me tag along in the back of her car, they reached a point where she was curious about what I thought about the whole process and, uh, you know, let me into her world at, at that point, and I think that is, you know, was no great skill on my behalf. It was just, you know, showing up every day and her seeing me there every day and knowing that everyone else is talking to me about the story and about the movie being made. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to get in there and, you know, give you my viewpoint. Yeah, those are uh, those are good moments, the outside smoking a cigarette. That's basically like the only way I could talk to girls in college. <laughs> well, well, you can imagine with Lindsay, I mean, you know, she is... You know, you know, such a bundle of energy. You know, I think 
she was very I can't, you know it's hard to describe she's both very approachable and also just kind of that movie store movie star unapproachable like some moments she would just be casual and you could talk to her for a few minutes and other times you could be like you know what you i'm going to give her give her as much space as she needs because she's dealing with something or she's trying to get into her part or something like that so it really could just vary from day to day yeah i mean i'm interested in that like uh how what your impressions had you met her before i had not i had not it was not yeah, so i mean what were your impressions of her before you started reporting and then how did your take on her change as you got to know her well my, i think my 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 take on her um you know, it, it kind of evolved because I, I wanted to do the story um, whether or not uh, she was in the movie or not. Obviously, uh, the, the story would have probably been much shorter <laughs> and, you know, maybe run as a smaller feature. But So her addition to it was interesting but wasn't going to be my main focus. And, I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed her in movies like Mean Girls and she was in uh, uh, the film adaptation of uh, Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion and I thought she was great in that. And, you know, I would follow because I follow the media and pop culture, her kind of rise and falls. But I didn't really uh, have a preconceived notion of her. And what my notion, once I got to spend a little bit of time with her, was that she could be funny, she could be manipulative, but she was also just incredibly vulnerable. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, there's, you know, there'd be moments in the piece, you know, there's a mo- moment in the story where, uh, you know, someone talks about uh, rejection as an actress is formative, and she just kind of jokes, um, you know, try going to jail, that's really formative. And there was another moment I'll just share real quick, is that uh, they're doing the first day of sh- shooting, and they, they're all at a restaurant table, and, they, you know, the prop design comes over and puts a big basket of bread on the table, and she gets kind of deadpans, like, Nobody eats bread in L.A. And, you know, and everyone, right. everyone took away the basket. So, you know, there was, like anybody, she had these moments where she was very approachable and other moments when she was not approachable at all. Well, I mean, you say like anybody, but I, I, I feel like uh, she is unlike most people. And I mean, she's basically been for the last several years, she's been a punchline and a pretty one dimensional punchline. I mean, part of what uh, I think people responded to so much of this story is that um, it's she feels full in your piece, like like she does feel both kind of funny and a little nuts and vulnerable and uh, smart at times and kind of all over the place. But she she feels like a uh, somewhat rounded character in a way that I think even if you have been following, which I haven't particularly, but even if you have been, she she hasn't quite been portrayed that way. I mean. Um, it felt to me like you were able to find, and maybe this was because of the access, a, a sort of more empathetic place with her than maybe anyone else has, or certainly anyone else has since this kind of fall. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that as a journalist, uh, I've talked to a couple of friends about this. Is like, you know, publicists don't want to give you access because they they're afraid of what you're going to see. But if you spend enough time with anybody, you know, short of Mussolini or Genghis Khan. They're going to humanize themselves because they're they're human beings like you are, and they have their whatever demented battles they're fighting, and they have their their version of crazy. But if you get to spend some time with them as flesh and blood, they're going to come across as flesh and blood in the story in a way that they don't in other stories. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this does feel, uh, at least from her perspective, kind of like a case for 
uh, access. What has her reaction been? What has the reaction been of, of Schrader and, and Dean and the rest of the cast since your piece came out? Um, well, Lindsay, you know, Lindsay never actually speaks directly. So I'm quoting her quote unquote people as they spoke to TMZ that uh, she agreed with most of it. You know, she, mo- she said most of it happened. Uh, there was a couple of things about drinking on set that she denied, which is understandable. I mean, you're not going to, you know, really cop to drinking and driving. So I, th- that's, th- that's, that's understandable, but, uh, there wasn't a lot of blowback from her. Um, I actually, uh, ran into James Dean yesterday. I, we were both doing a, t- a taping at CNN and he's like, you know, I was fine with it. I think, you know, what you're presenting is basic reality refracted through a mirror, you know, heightened for drama. And I think, you know, that's, pre- that's pretty, pr- pretty <laughs> that's, good, pretty good description. That's... Yeah, it's kind of like a definition of journalism. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So uh, Paul, Paul has kind of been a little bit cryptic. He's you know, sent me notes about what other people thought of the story, but he hasn't completely weighed in um, with me directly, and that's fine. You know, one of the things I've learned with these stories is you do them, and you can write an incredibly you know, flattering story to somebody, and they'll find two paragraphs they don't like. So I've, I've really got out of the business of trying to persuade people that they should either like or dislike what I've written about them. Yeah, certainly going going back and trying to persuade people, that is pretty tough. But I assume that you're going to be trying to persuade people uh, sometime in the future to let you do this again. Do you think that this story is going to make it easier or, or harder for you to do that? Well, it really is, it really kind of depends on the circumstance. I did a similar story on Jed Apto when he made Knocked Up, and he made this joke every day. I would sh- show up on the sentences. This is the day Roderick thinks, you know, Judd's going to throw a phone at somebody. Every day he shows up thinking someone's, I'm going to throw a phone at somebody. And that's kind of true, sort of not true. It's like, you write what you see. I've written other stories like this where it's about the creative process, but, you know, it, it, it's not as surreal as the Canyons was. So, you know, hopefully if, if, if this circumstance comes again, I can, you know, I can give the, you know, the filmmaker or the musician or whatever, like two or three stories and say, look, this is, I write what I see. If, if you're not afraid for me to write what I see, then we'll be fine. Yeah. You gotta, you just got to challenge them a little bit. Sure. Sure. Um, take me through the, the, the sort of uh, process with the times. What was your original pitch and, and how close did the story end up uh, sticking to that? Uh, my pitch was basically Lohan, Schrader, Brett Easton Ellis, and a porn star named James Dean make a movie. You know, come on, we got to do this. And that, that was, this was one of those few no-brainers where once I had the access, they're like, oh yeah, we got to do this. Um, you know, whether it was going to be a cover story or run it a shorter version kind of depended on what I got. But, uh, you know, once... You know, the, the the film was kind of coming together very quickly, so I actually talked to Schrader on a Friday night or Saturday, and he said, sure. And so I was able to present it to my editors at the Times Magazine. Is like, look, if we want to do this, it'll totally happen. And I think that makes it easier for people to sign off when you're like, look, <laughs> we can do this. It's not like we need to jump through five more hoops. Uh, everyone's on board, so. Yeah, I mean, them giving you that kind of access, as, you know, it... it uh it reflected where they were at. I mean, you had all these people, except for Dean, I guess, who's, who's kind of on the uh, come up, but the rest of these folks are really kind of at, at naders in their careers. And, you know, there's this moment in the story where Lohan's publicist comes up and says, like, you got to go. And 
uh, he <laughs> like Schrader pulls rank, and, and no one's really got any options. Right. Uh, and that and that sort of comes through from the very start. I wonder well, if there's. Well, I, any- I, I would say I, I, I savored that mo- that moment because the moment where the director actually puts the reporter ahead of a star. Probably yeah, has never happened before in Western civilization, and will, right, ne- first and time will never recorded will, and will never happen again. So, but yeah, it's true. It's like he, he would, you know, Paul would say, uh, "I respect, you know, Lindsay's view on this, or, or Lindsay's publicist's view on this, and you know, by all means, if you're not comfortable with this, uh, you can pull her from the movie, and I have somebody else waiting to take the part." And um, you know, that was easy for him to say at the beginning of shooting. You know, uh, when he saw the power to replace her, the problem that directors have is that, you know, seven or eight pieces, you know, seven or eight days into filming, um, then the actress has the power. But to her credit, she didn't say after day eight, look, I can totally make you disappear if I want to and hold the film hostage. By that point, she was like, fine, yeah. Yeah, I thought that, I I mean, that dynamic made total sense that, like, as soon as the movie starts shooting, the, the power switches uh, although it ne- never really occurred to me before. Right. Were there any moments where people did force you to go off the record? I'm not, you know, expecting you to tell us what they were, but were, the, despite the fact that you had sort of all access, were people trying to push back on that at all? Or, or were you really like kind of part of the set as much as anything else? Yeah, no, there wasn't really a lot of, a lot of pushback. I mean, I think, um, uh, I, I think in the end, would, would they have been happy if I had not, if I had, not mention that they had not gotten to Sundance, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, is a bit of a blow for that to be out in the public, which I know a lot of great films don't get into Sundance. It doesn't really completely speak to the quality or lack of quality of the film. But um, uh, no, there, was, there wasn't a ton of pushback. I mean, I, I think it um, actually during the fact-checking, um, you know, Paul, you know, spoke or emailed with Lindsay's publicist and said, look, this is... What they fact checked with me, uh, I wish I could say some of it isn't true, but that's that's pretty much how it happened, and you know we're going to go from there. Was there anything that uh, that didn't make the final story? Was there anything left on the cutting room floor that was uh, that was close? Uh, yeah, there was a um, there was a day where um, Lindsay went out with a couple of friends for a like six hundred dollar lunch, and they were shooting. A sex scene, not the four-way. Another sex scene in the movie at uh, Braxton Pope's house, uh, who was a who was the producer, and um, they were doing some touch-up to her hair right before the scene. And it was first kind of love scene that the second male lead, this guy Nolan Gerard Funk, was playing, and he was nervous. And he's looking out the window at the house, and there's paparazzi snapping pictures, and he's trying to get to his kind of like actor safe zone. And all of a sudden, there's a scream from the bathroom. And Lindsay somehow has picked up the hot end of a curling iron and um, has burned her hand. And um, I think it was frozen peas that they put on it or something. But, uh, you know, so there's all this commotion like, oh, we, you know, we only have the house for the day. And but, you know, they applied the frozen peas and uh, about 15, 20 minutes later, they, they did the shot and moved on from there. Nice. Well done. Uh, so what do you think of the movie? I mean, you've seen it. Is it uh is it something we should go see? You know, it's, it's, as, I, as I say in, this, in the story, the first 10 minutes um, are very slow, and that's problematic because it's the first 10 minutes. It's like the first chapter of a book or the, you know, the lead of a magazine story being slow. And, you know, Braxton, the producer, and Brett, the uh, screenwriter, wanted to reshoot it, but trying to re-wrangle Lindsay just wasn't going to happen. But that being said, after 10 or 12 minutes, 
uh, it really does kick in, and I find it to be like a very enjoyable. Um, and I don't mean this as a as, as a as a slur. It's like a great B movie thriller, and um, yeah, it's definitely worth the five or eight dollars that you'd pay for it on video on demand or or, <laughs> right. or wherever you would see it. Who doesn't love a great B movie thriller? Exactly. I had two more questions for you, which uh, this being a somewhat experimental episode, I also did something we have not done before and asked people on the internet if they wanted to ask you questions. Two that came in were interesting. One was about uh, sort of wondering about the position that Schrader had put the other people, the the sort of actors in by agreeing to give you this access. I mean, my sense is that he gave you full access. No one else had any say in that and whether that was um, unfair or whether that put his actors in a in a kind of uh, can't win position. Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it was actually a joint decision between uh, Paul Braxton, the producer, and Brett, the screenwriter, and they were all on board with it. And I got to tell you, except for Lindsay, and I say this more, except for Lindsay's people, um, I don't think any of the other actors or actresses had a problem with it. I mean, they are all like really good people and you know, most of them are young getting just getting started out in the career uh so that you know they, they didn't pull a lot of attitude they were all very open and great oh, that's awesome what the other question was uh there's this line in early on in the story where schrader is basically like we don't need to save this girl we just need to get her through three weeks of shooting a movie how, how do you think she's doing i mean I, I, you know what what's going to happen next for her Boy, if, if I could predict that, uh, I would uh, be wearing a wizard's hat right now. Um, you know, it, it's hard to tell. I mean, she is somebody who, if, you know, it sounds weird, but it's it's like if she, if she had like three very smart people take her somewhere for six months and kind of just let her recapture her life and live life out of the spotlight and out of the paparazzi I do think she still has a lot of really true talent. Um, whether or not that's actually going to happen, who knows? It's it's it just it's really hard to know. I mean, it's just people in the situations that she's in, they either hit a point and they they bounce back like a Robert Downey Jr. or they don't, and it's it, it's really up to her. Stephen, so you wrote this story. I got to tell you, I think I said this in the intro, but. It, I, this is probably going to go down as the most clicked story, uh, certainly in the history of Logform. It was basically all I saw on Twitter for like three days after it came out. Um, how, how are you going to follow that up? What are you working on now? Oh, um, what am I working on? I'm, I've just finished a book uh, called The Magical Stranger, which is a half memoir, half reportage about uh, my father, who is a Navy pilot who was actually killed in a plane crash when I was 13. And I spent two years uh, kind of investigating his life and also following his old squadron as they deployed to the Persian Gulf for missions over Afghanistan. So just finished that, and it's just reaching Galley's Point, so kind of trying to catch my breath after that. Awesome. Amazing. Well, that's, that sounds like uh, the, the uh, ideal follow-up to the story. Yeah, it's uh, you know, a mixture of <laughs> high and low. Yeah, direct line. Yes. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time in, and uh, I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, thanks to Stephen very much for hopping on the phone on such short notice. Thanks to our editor, as always, Lauren Kirchner, for continuing to indulge me. 
thanks very much to the folks on Twitter who were uh, asking us to do this. Uh, keep doing that. We always do everything that anyone asks us to do. I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. We'll be back next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.